Perhaps the most controversial era of Spider-Man comics. More daring than the Clone Saga. Better selling than Chapter One. More era-defining than the night Gwen Stacy died. Hot on the heels of the Civil War, Spider-Man was on the run, his identity revealed, and his family in dire straits. From the ashes of this story, shit got real, real quick for our hero, who, to save the life of his elderly and frail aunt, who's died more times than Buffy, entered into a bizarre storyline whereby Mephisto, the Marvel Comics analogue for Satan, offered the hapless Peter Parker an opportunity. Give Mephisto his marriage to stunning supermodel and red-headed icon Mary Jane Watson, and in exchange, Mephisto will save Aunt May's life. They're up. Other things thrown in to sweeten the pot. Mephisto will make everybody forget Peter Parker is Spider-Man. Quite a deal for our hero who had stupidly unmasked himself in the criminally overrated tripe-fest Civil War. And there may be other side effects of the deal as well. Peter can't bring himself to do it, so Mary Jane takes it upon herself to shake the metaphorical hand of the devil, thereby nullifying Peter and Mary Jane's nuptials and essentially rebooting the strip from at least the last 20 years, and maybe more. There were a number of problems with this. To maintain the illusion that Marvel was still one big happy continuity, Marvel insisted that the past 20 years worth of Spider-Man stories happened, just simply without the marriage. Peter and Mary Jane lived together as man and wife without actually being man and wife, which screwed up stories like Craven's Last Hunt, something fierce. The novel to that story takes place in this new continuity where the two aren't married and never had been, and the story isn't as impactful because of it. Also, what about the honeymoon issue? Did that never happen? The Michelini McFarlane run, that never happened as we saw it? The Clone Saga? The problems don't end there. One of the major changes wrought in this new era was the rebirth undeathifying of Harry Osborn. Harry had died in a memorable story arc, concluding in Spectacular Spider-Man issue 200 back in 1993. The resurrection of Harry would presumably play a part in the events of Peter's life retroactively, but Marvel felt this just wasn't important enough to dwell on. The other major problem was the undoing of the marriage itself. Whilst the marriage of Peter Parker was always slightly controversial, it had been over 20 years since this was done. Whilst one can argue the pros and cons of it, the simple fact is a significant portion of the readership had grown up with the marriage to Mary Jane being an integral part of the strip. Undoing it would come with significant implications. So what did Marvel do? Given the world Marvel Comics inhabit, any number of situations could have been concocted to remove the marriage from continuity. From simple divorce, to a massive storyline that culminated with the Shaper of Worlds, or the Beyonder, or the Watcher having to rewrite history to save all mankind. Instead, Marvel chose to write a terribly stupid story with significant plot problems, where that famous member of the Spider-Man rogues gallery, Mephisto, wipes it from existence. It was silly in a very bad way. And it was insulting to an awful lot of readers. Still, we're not here to look at that. Best to do what Marvel did and brush it quickly under the carpet and pay it no further thought. 
The result of all this palaver was Brand New Day, an epoch-making new era for Spider-Man, in which the character and his comics were stealth-rebooted, a situation that allowed Marvel to have their yummy cake and stuff their mouths with it, until they exploded in a confectionery mix of icing, sugar and jam. Brand New Day would be an interesting era. Editor Stephen Wacker would coordinate a new, revitalised Amazing Spider-Man book that, as of issue 546 published in January 2008, would ship three times a month. All the other Spider-Man titles would be axed. Marvel's theory for this was sound. None of the auxiliary Spider-Books ever sold as well as Amazing, so making Amazing a thrice-weekly title would presumably make all those who only bought Amazing shell out for it on a more regular basis. Wacker had had previous success with the weekly DC comic 52, so thrice-monthly should be a breeze, right? Wacker, realising that no one creative team could pull this off, hired a brain trust of writers who would handle the writing chores with a revolving door of artists, each assigned a different arc, because we have to keep those trade paperbacks stuffed. The initial group were Bob Gale from the Back to the Future films, Mark Guggenheim, who has later found success working on the DC TV shows, Zeb Wells, who I didn't know from Adam, and Dan Slott, who had worked on different books over the years. The team weren't terribly deferential in initial interviews, bigging up their role and how the stories would unfold in a terribly unfun and irreverent manner. There's nothing wrong with that, Stan Lee was the master of irreverence, but a lot of these interviews came off as simply obnoxious. Reading them now is downright painful. Still, it was what was between the covers that counted, and readers had their first glance at Brand New Day in 2007 with Free Comic Book Day. Later republished as Swing Shift, the director's cut, because comics went through a phase where they very desperately wanted to be movies. Swing Shift was written by Slot, with art by Phil Jimenez, Andy Lanning and John Dell. The cover of the director's cut has Spider-Man crouching on a cornice as if taking a dump. It is unfinished, as if to say, look, a special edition. It's fine. I just kind of think a new era like this deserved a more attractive cover. It's May the 5th, which was free comic book day that year, and Peter Parker is buying a cake for Aunt May's 950th birthday. He muses about all the heroes being legit now as a consequence of Civil War, which means that lawless vigilantes like him are pretty much part-timers. Suddenly an Audi TT speeds by, announcing to all that'll listen, Overdrive! Coming through! It's nice to see that even in the Marvel Universe, Audi drivers are massive assholes. Peter is forced to leap out of the way, a two-story leap that not only isn't seen by anybody on this crowded street, but presumably not caught on any CCTV cameras that may be installed in a busy New York City shopping district. Peter webs up the cake under a ledge instead of placing it in a corner of a high rooftop, pops a spider tracer and switches to Spider-Man. I had assumed, wrongly as it turns out, that the Todd McFarlane homages were a thing of the past, but no, even in this brand new era, Jimenez pulls off a two-page splash that could have been published in 1992. Overdrive receives a call from his mysterious new villain, Mr. Negative, who asks how it's all going. Overdrive just robbed a museum for Mr. N, and he wants what he paid for. Spidey drops by, and there are two cops in hot pursuit, a Vin Gonzalez and some guy named O'Neill, who have differing views on the wall crawler and his motives. Spidey rips the roof off the Audi and is shocked to see Spider-Man bubbleheads, air fresheners, etc. 
Apparently Overdrive is a big fan of our wall-crawling hero and, in a really funny bit, asks Spider-Man to sign his stuff. Spidey demures and is electrified for his troubles. We then pop over for a subplot update. J. Jonah Jameson is bored. The bugle circulation is in the toilet since the heroes went legit, but a reappearance from Spider-Man could be just what the circulation doctor ordered. Betty Brant and Robbie are here as well, but they don't really do anything. Then we cut to the bar with no name where all the crooks hang out. They start taking bets on Spider-Man's odds of surviving the fight with Overdrive, with a new character called The Bucky. Back at the fight, there's car smashing and crashes aplenty as Overdrive manages to zoom through the New York streets without hitting any traffic. A car spins out of control, but a stacked redhead named Jackpot pulls a bloke out of the way. As a new and more importantly licensed hero, she lets Spider-Man take off after Overdrive, calling him Tiger as he swings away. So, lovely listener, who do we think this is supposed to be? Spider-Man lands atop Gonzalez and O'Neill's cop car and tells them to ram Overdrive after pointing out how they can catch up with him. They do, and Overdrive careens over into the Hudson River, but Spidey webs him and his car so the cops can do their thing. Gonzalez still thinks Spidey's a show-off, but O'Neill is a bit of a fan. Spider-Man returns to the cake but apparently can't tear his own webbing, which seems quite dumb to me, but I can't source that he can do it, so we'll give Slot benefit of the doubt. He has to wait an hour for the webbing to dissolve, returning home late and with a cake even Mr. Creosote wouldn't eat. May arrives home from her party and laughs at her irresponsible nephew asleep on her couch. Cue comedy music. Um, Swing Shift isn't a bad little story, especially for a free comic book day giveaway. It's a pretty straightforward old-school Spider-Man tale, in which we are introduced to a ton of new characters that will presumably be fleshed out over the coming months. It's nice, it's inconsequential, and it sets up the new direction without actually giving anything away. Apparently there were some edits made between this copy and the free comic book day edition, but nothing I could find was too different. The problem is with the ending. Aunt May thinking Peter isn't responsible is a massive change to canon, arguably a bigger change than removing the marriage. May thought Peter was responsible, if a little flighty at times. She never thought he was useless. This final page seems to be painting Peter as a loser-slash-slacker rather than an early 20-something with his shit together. Even before the marriage, Peter had a job as a teaching assistant and was more focused on making something of his photography, just after the marriage, he went on a book tour where he appeared on television talk shows. In the Straczynski run, he became a full-fledged science teacher. Even in the Burn run and post-clone saga, he worked in a prestigious scientific research facility. This move was the biggest throwback for me, in that it was a rewriting of Peter's personality, rather than a simple reboot. Having Peter be 25 and trying to figure out his life feels wrong and stupid, as Peter never was a slacker or a work-shy fop. He always had a goal, a direction to go in. Being Spider-Man kind of got in the way of that, but at least he was focused. Here, he's a Nirvana listener, circa 1991. The director's cut of Swing Shift has Tom Brevoot's manifesto of where to go after the events of Civil War wrap-up. Interestingly, as well as Harry being resurrected, bringing back Gwen Stacy was also on the table. But he then writes that the worst thing we can do is make it 1968 again, which bringing Gwen back would surely have done. Maybe that's why they didn't do it. He also says that introducing new characters should be incremental, 
you know, as opposed to giving us two new villains, two new characters, someone who may or may not be Murray Jane, and updating us on the Daily Bugle crew in one 20-page story that was given away for free. The manifesto does make for interesting reading, more for what they didn't do than for what they did, as well as being quite informative on how companies go about updating some of these classic concepts for the 21st century. There are also some interesting excerpts from the Spider-Man Bible for 2008, teasers of the new characters we'll be meeting over the coming months, and a rundown of the writers and artists for the first block of stories. The issue wraps up with Stephen Wacker apologising for having to lie that this was in fact part of Brand New Day, as it initially saw print before the Straczynski run had ended. Brand New Day kicked off properly with Amazing Spider-Man 546, with no cover date because Marvel doesn't do that anymore. The cover by Steve McNiven and Dexter Vines has Spider-Man running up a wall, tugging his mask over his smiling face. A camera swings from his shoulder, J. Jonah Jameson bellows from a billboard about Spider-Man being a masked menace, and a cover blurb informs us that this is now on sale three times a month. It screams, look, it's the Spider-Man you know and love, back, if the Spider-Man you loved was from over 20 years ago. The main story, Brand New Day, was drawn by McNiven and Vines and written by Dan Slott. It opens with a clear attempt to bait fans of the wedding, with Peter snogging some random woman. But Peter, who is talking to us through caption narration that isn't at all overplayed, rewinds 24 hours to Spider-Man pointing a gun at a bloke in an alley demanding money. This, apparently, is the Spider-Man mugger. And, as a convenient news broadcast informs us, this has been going on for a while. Nobody believes it's the real Spider-Man, even Jameson. But this doesn't stop him from going on the news and banging on about how Spider-Man is a menace, even if he hasn't been seen for a few months. Peter is now back living with May in Forest Hills, in a house that was blown up not too long ago, and was derelict not long before that. But seemingly, Mephisto was kind enough to do a makeover of the old place as part of the deal. May is pissed off with Peter being a lazy workshy fop, and he gets up and starts hunting for a job. Throughout these opening pages, there is a subtle hint that there is an election going on between somebody called Parfrey and Crown. May has a vote for Parfrey button, so we know whose side she's on. Peter's job search is a bust. A school points out that his teaching attendance was crap, a photography job points out that his technique was crap, and a science job points out that his life is crap. Of the three of them, it's the science one that has a point. To the best of my knowledge, Peter hasn't had any science papers published, although one would assume he should have had something from university on his resume. Betty calls him to give him heads up about an apartment, and Harry calls about a night out, so the day isn't a complete waste of time. Harry is hanging around with two new characters, Lily Hollister, a party-going Murray Jane type, and Carly Cooper, a studious Gwen type. Everything old is new again, I suppose. Across town, Mr Negative takes possession of a stone tablet from a corrupt policeman. Well, it's in a briefcase, and it looks like a tablet, so once again, old is new. We're back at the beginning where we learn that the girl swapping spit with Mr. Parker is really only out to get in the orbit of Harry Osborn. Peter, learning this, does a runner through the toilet into the alleyway. Now, I've been in a few nightclubs and there's no real way you can have a conversation in them, but fair play for drawing a suitably horrendous toilet. In the alley, Peter runs into Carly, who isn't a nightclub person. I know how she feels, and Peter starts flirting with her because she's a little bit Gwen and a little bit Deb Whitman and also a cop, so handcuffs. They both get hit up by the spider mugger who steals Peter's wallet and web shooter, but Carly, sensibly, says to let the guy get away because that's what Burr Grylls tells us to do. 
Peter is annoyed he couldn't do anything, so he fires off a spider tracer and then ditches Carly to follow the mugger to get some photos. He decides against changing to Spider-Man as he's not about to line Jonah's pockets and takes Chase as Peter. He confronts the mugger in front of the FEAST, the Food Emergency Aid, Shelter and Training Facility to help homeless people were, by pure coincidence, Aunt May works. What are the odds? Timeline note. May woke Peter up at 7am, and this is 2am, and May has therefore been up and at work for 19 hours. I swear the woman has the stamina of Captain America. Ignoring that this is quite a funny scene, Peter tells May he was mugged, and they all think he had his shoes robbed. Again, this is quite funny, because he isn't wearing them simply so that he can crawl on walls. May's boss, Martin Lee, gives him some shoes, but the mugger swans out the back and gets away. Peter ditches the chase and heads over to the bugle, where at 2.15 in the morning, both Betty and Jonah are still at work. Also, the nightclub, the place where May works, and the bugle are all within five minutes of each other. Is New York really that small? Peter wants his cheque that the bugle owes him to help him make a deposit on the apartment Betty turned him on to earlier. Jonah is fighting a takeover of the bugle and has had to stop people's pay, which makes Peter see red, and he tears a strip off Jonah for screwing him over all these years. Jonah has a massive heart attack and falls to the floor. To be continued. Um, not a terrible issue in and of itself, but it's a throwback rather than a new direction. Slot writes good dialogue and manages to seed the story with loads of foreshadowing, but one can't help but feel this is a massive step back for the character. McNiven's art is stiff and not really appealing, and Spider-Man doesn't appear at all. As this was a double-sized issue, the back half is padded out with a double-page spread telling us about the new status quo, which I would have thought would be the purpose of the story we've just read. Despite this being a new direction, the very first image mentions Gwen and Murray Jane, who are irrelevant for this stealth reboot. It tells us that Harry is back after being in the catch-all hiding place for all Americans, Europe. Were in Europe isn't stated, so this makes it look like the writers think there's a massive country in the middle of the planet simply called Europe. Harry doesn't remember being the Green Goblin, although Peter does. Harry does remember being married to Liz Allen, but he's now divorced, which is a massive thing for Harry that we will never see the details of. Aunt May lives in Forest Hills and he's doing okay. Nobody knows Peter's secret. Some nice John Romita Jr. art can't hide the fact that this is filler. Park Avenue Interlude is one of the backup strips and stars Jackpot. It goes out of its way to pretend that this is Murray Jane and she's now a superhero. This story introduces Menace. They will come in useful later. The astonishing Aunt May shows Aunt May at work, which is truly fascinating, and Harry and the Hollisters has Harry meet his girlfriend's dad, Bill Hollister, and is every bit as dull as it sounds. I do uh, have to wonder who the issue is aimed at. Long-time fans are going to be pissed off at it. New fans are going to think this is massively dull. Nothing happens. Nothing. It's all set up with nothing to sink one's teeth into. Now... I know what you're thinking, and you're right, it's written for the trade, but don't give me none of that written for the trade bullshit. This issue, and Marvel's marketing of same, made out that this was a jumping on point. It goes out of its way to say, hey guys, come back to Spider-Man. So it should be judged as it was sold. And on that regard, it falls well short of what I expect for a jumping on issue. Issue 547 continues the story. Spider-Man tackles suited and kabuki-masked villains on the cover. Peter performs mouth-to-mouth on Jonah as the paramedics arrive and Robbie Robertson leaps into action, giving everyone an assigned task such as find out all you can about the Carnelli crime family, sit down with the Magia. 
For Peter, Robbie tells him that to save Jonah, he needs to save the Bugle, which means a massive exclusive, preferably Spider-Man shaped. Slot clearly subscribes to the idea that Robbie knows Peter is Spider-Man, and the subtext in this scene is definitely Robbie telling Spider-Man to go and do his thing. Peter follows orders, changes, and decides the best thing to do is get the mugger who last issue nicked his web shooter and wallet. We're treated to a nice full-page splash of Spider-Man doing that very thing. Harry, meanwhile, has taken Carly and Lily to the coffee bean, which Harry now owns, to calm Carly down, and the mugger is at the blind spot, a bar where nobody sees nothing, see? The mugger is trying to fence Peter and Carly's stuff, but nobody wants the web shooter, because it looks kind of shit and they don't know what it does. Mugger man fiddles with it, and accidentally fires off a spider tracer at Bruno. Bruno, wouldn't you know it, is in with the Carnelli crime family. Again, what are the odds? Spider-Man now has two tracers to follow, as both men leave the bar at the same time. What is this, an episode of Three's Company? It gets better. Bruno is kidnapped by Mr. Negative. Mr. Negative wants Bruno's blood, but in stripping off Bruno's clothes, spies the spider tracer. To be fair, this is all pretty pacey, trots along nicely. Sure, there's a ton of coincidences here, but the constant crisscrossing of the subplots never gets boring. Elsewhere, Marla Madsen, looking nothing like the Marla Madsen of old, vows to sell the bugle to a man named Dexter Bennett as Jonah lies dying in the OR. Back in Chinatown, Spider-Man drops in on Mr. Negative through the skylight, where it is now broad daylight. Okay, I know it's supposed to be around May, so sunrise is early, but we can't be more than an hour later at this point, meaning we're at about half past three in the morning. Time confusion aside, Negative is starting to get a persecution complex, given that of the two times Spider-Man has come out of retirement, it's been to interfere with his operations. Spidey spots the stone tablet, and Negative tells him that this is the tablet of death and entropy, not the tablet of life and time that he's previously encountered. Spidey doesn't care and smashes it anyway. Negative has it backed up and leaves Spidey to save Bruno, who is now bleeding out on the table. Elsewhere, the mugger has figured out how to use the web shooter and is robbing some other mugs, but he's not too smart enough to realise that the man he mugged had to be Spider-Man until it's pointed out to him, inadvertently, by his victims. Mr. Brightspark figures out that if he can get back the wallet, he'll know Spider-Man's ID, something that was just rebooted so as to be a secret again. Spidey does save Bruno, and Bruno tells Spidey that the Magia meet is happening at the Vandermeer Hotel, where Mr. Negative plans to kill everyone and take over the mobs. Just like the Master Planner, and the Green Goblin, and the Big Man, and loads of other past Spider-Man villains. Spider-Man tries to save the goons, but a red gas is pumped into the room, causing everyone to fall to the floor, gasping at their throats. Part 2 was actually a great read. If we're to buy into this brand new day thing, then having a story that is fast-paced enough to paper over the cracks is the way to go. And give Slot credit, this is fast-paced. Jumping around from scene to scene, chucking in different subplots and setting stuff up for later is much better in this second chapter than the first chapter, which I felt was a massive disappointment. Perhaps if this issue had been in with the last issue as a double-sized launch and they'd have eschewed all the crappy backup stories, then the first part of this story wouldn't have felt as dull as there would have been a heaping helping of action to go along with the setup. It's nice to see some new villains, even if their motivations aren't terribly innovative. Taking Spider-Man back down the crime noir route is always appreciated as well. Issue 548's cover has Spider-Man pulling back on a webline about to launch a bomb through the air. Spider-Man is surprised to not be dead. 
The waiters and hotel staff are all okay as well, as is one member of the Carnelli family. Spidey figures out that the blood of Bruno was used to isolate who was killed, but the gas is escaping into the streets. Any members of the Carnelli family out there will be killed. The Carnelli that survived reveals that he was adopted, and he tells Spidey where the kids and wives will be. Despite having been up for over a day now, Carly steps out of the Osborne limo to see how she can help. Sadly, she's knocked back by an officer who feels she's new and she'd only be in the way. Spider-Man, meanwhile, has hitched a cab ride to the Cirque du Soleil, where all the mob wives are hanging out. With the aid of his spider senses, Spider-Man spots the bomb that will deliver the gas and manages to jettison it away long enough to get the mob kids away. Again, all pretty high-octane stuff, more than making up for the slow beginning. This is where Slot really scores as a writer. So fast-paced is his stories, so action-orientated, that this really doesn't give you time to think about the problems, like the timeline being very skewy, and the sheer level of coincidence. Also, the next plot point. Mr. Negative isn't happy with all these shenanigans and captures a kid. He will kill said child if Spidey doesn't give him a vial of his own blood, so Negative can kill him or his family with a gas bomb at any time. Now, what's the problem with this scenario? Answer, Peter has no family. The sister, Teresa, doesn't exist yet, so Peter doesn't know about her. Yeah, technically she may cark it if she was in range, but that would hardly be Peter's fault. And sure, any of the clones that are still around would die as well, but I think they're all supposed to be dead at this point. We're supposed to be concerned for Aunt May, but she's not a blood relative. Ben Parker was Peter's blood relation, not May. Now, I suppose that because Peter has given May a blood transfusion in the past, she may be at risk, but that's a pretty big if. Big Spider-Man fan like Dan Slott, you'd think would have realised this. With Negative happy, he chucks the kid overboard so Spider-Man will rescue her as Negative legs it. Spider-Man is told by Maggie's mum that they are in his debt, a development I really did like. On the subplot front, Dexter Bennett shows up to take possession of the bugle, being an asshole to Robbie as he does so, and the Spider-Mugger tries to get Peter's details back, only to end up dead in an alley. Another corpse with a spider tracer in its mouth shows up, and due to the level of coincidence in this book, Carly is the one who's readying it for autopsy. Speaking of coincidences, Mr. Negative is really Martin Lee, who owns the feast place that May works at. Finally, Spider-Man gets around to tracking down the spider-mugger, but is spotted by the cops who think that he killed the guy, because, of course, they do. If you look up mixed bag in the dictionary, this arc will be the... On the one hand, this is a lot better than the last time Marvel tried a flat-out relaunch of Spider-Man with the Howard Mackie John Byrne run. This at least doesn't feel old and tired. It does feel like a greatest hit selection, though. All of the older Spider-Man clichés are here. Aunt May in danger, misunderstandings with the cops, girl troubles, job troubles, money troubles, crime noir baddies, but without a lot that's really new. It's not bad, although the art is stiff and unappealing, but with the way the book is set up, there'll be a new art team along next issue, so it doesn't matter. Despite the hype, though, there's not really a lot worth sticking around for. Maybe the next art will be better. Mark Guggenheim and Salvador La Roca tell the story of Menace in Amazing Spider-Man 549 through 551. The cover to 549 is a blurry photoshopped gig implying motion. Spider-Man looks like he's swinging in from the Sam Raimi movies, but it's an arresting image. Who's That Girl opens at the Port Authority in Brooklyn. A bunch of thugs are relieved of their heads by a mysterious menace. God, the art is muddy in these opening pages, like the colourist thought it would look edgier if you couldn't see anything. 
Over at the Bugle, Dexter Bennett's rebranding has begun with the Ailey Eugle being removed to create the DB, New York's newest media hub. The two men responsible for removing the famous Bugle rooftop signage are discussing the upcoming election between Crown and Parfrey. Parfrey is a woman, Crown is a rich white man. The more things change. One of the men is knocked off the window washer, but luckily Spider-Man is passing by. Again, the captions are trying for an old Stan Lee vibe, but more hip. As such, they lack Stan's charm and self-effacement, coming across as obnoxious and irritating. Still, Spider-Man saving the guy while singing the Mighty Mouse theme before switching to the 60s Spider-Man cartoon theme is funny, especially his changing of the lyrics. This being Spidey, he not only has to save the falling construction guy, but a giant U which is plummeting to the ground. Pity there's no F in Daily Bugle. With all that done and dusted, Peter returns to the Bugle to receive his orders from the new owner. A new owner is already clearing out the old by firing a few people, but not before one of them can deliver some exposition to Peter about a dead body with a spider tracer in their mouth. Don't worry though, it's not a Bugle employee that we care about, so we'll quickly ignore him and follow Peter into the briefing. Bennett wants the DB to be of the now, not just reflecting today's news, but being in the middle of it. Guess he'll be relaunching Now magazine then. He wants major news stories of the day, sensationalistic, horrific, and to the first person who gets him a photo of this menace character, ten grand. This is music to Peter Shell-like, and he switches to Spider-Man to find this new guy who looks astonishing like he has goblin tech. This is made harder by A, having run out of web fluid, saving the U, and 2, running into Jackpot, the hot redhead who is New York's newest licensed crime fighter. She is hip deep in mugging, which Spider-Man helps out with. I say helps. Mr. Mugger gets away, but Spider-Man learns that Jackpot is after the Grey Goblin and he warns her off. I don't remember how all this played out, but Marvel are really, really, really trying to sell you on the idea that this is Mary Jane Watson. Anyway, Peter tracks Menace down through the exhaust emissions of his glider, saved by pollution, and he hits the jackpot, quite literally, punching the red-headed stunner in the face, thinking that she's Menace. She recovers, but both heroes are surrounded as a voice warns them that they are under arrest for failing to adhere to the Superhero Registration Act. Guggenheim moves the plot quickly and the situations are fast and funny. He moves into the second part in the non-double-sized 550th issue of The Amazing Spider-Man by picking up where the cliffhanger left off, as the voice reveals himself to be the Blue Shield. This amused me far more than it should, as I confuse this with Green Shield. Green Shield stamps were a sales promotion scheme that rewarded shoppers with stamps that could be used to buy gifts from a catalogue or from any affiliated retailer. They ran from 1958 to 1991, and I remember my nan always used to get Green Shield stamps. The Blue Shield is a by-the-book kind of guy, and due to Spider-Man being unregistered, the Blue Shield wants to take him down. Jackpot is of no concern, as she's a perfectly legal hero. The Blue Shield is quickly dispatched as he was only here to give last issue a cliffhanger ending. Spidey confronts Menace, which likewise leads nowhere as this is part two of three. Spidey thinks that Harry is Menace slash the Grey Goblin and Jackpot is MJ, but is proved wrong on both counts when Jackpot tells him her name is Sarah Eret and a phone call to Lily Hollister reveals that Harry spent the night with her. Jackpot and Spidey find blueprints in Menace's hangout to the Apollo Theatre. Subplots abound. Jonah Jameson and Marlon Madsen, here being played by Walter Matthau and Margot Kidder, have a tiff about the bugle, although Jonah still doesn't know it was sold, and Dexter Bennett refuses to buy Peter's substandard pictures. 
Peter also has Betty Brandt help him find out more about the Spider Tracer killer. Further investigation by Spider-Man reveals that this was the sixth murder. He has a serial killer on his hands. Elsewhere, a shady lawyer encourages a man who was hurt in a Spider-Man battle to sue him. All of this is interesting stuff, well done, rather routine. Spider-Man's investigations are interrupted by an explosion at the Apollo and Spider-Man tries to leave to see what's occurring, but he's surrounded by the cops who feel that, as he has admitted to having made the Spider-Tracer, which was found on multiple dead bodies, then he is a significant person of interest. I don't know what to say about part two here, lovely listener. This is all fine, but it's not much more than that. It'll be far too obvious to have Jackpot BMJ and Menace B. Harry, so we get to play the whole Green Goblin, Hobgoblin mystery again. But there aren't really any suspects. Now, we can argue that that was the case with the Green Goblin and the Hobgoblin stories as well, but we expect more nowadays. Had this been a story in the 80s, which is the era this seems to want to emulate, this would probably have been fine because Peter would have been in character as opposed to being this slacker wannabe. The art is rather bland as well. Anyway, issue 551 has a cover of Spider-Man fighting Menace in front of the moon. The story continues. Spider-Man must avoid the cops, which he does by a heaping helping of sarcasm and some dumb luck, thanks to Jackpot, who happens by and saves his ass. Together, they tackle Menace, saving Councilwoman Parfrey in the process. Spider-Man tackles Menace, wanting to know what this is all about. But in the fight, Menace's glider spears the Councilwoman, leaving Jackpot feeling really guilty, and Spider-Man... Well, Spider-Man couldn't really give a shit, to be honest. No, honestly, Spider-Man, King of Guilt, is written to have absolutely no remorse about this, and even goes to the DB with a photo of Parfrey on the glider with Menace from seconds before she died, which he sells for two grand. The only thing he seems bothered about is not getting the ten grand for having the first picture of Menace. He does drop by Jackpot's place to have a word, but the woman inside denies being Jackpot and tells Spider-Man to butt out. And ultimately, I think this is my main problem with, with this. It's, it's incredibly facile. There's none of the character depth of the Lee Ditko, Stern or Conway runs. Nothing particularly memorable about it. I've read this run at least twice before, and I do not have a single inkling as to who Menace is, what her deal is, how the story ends up turning out. Same with Jackpot. I've run through six issues here, and very little has actually happened. Peter is a slacker, Joan has had a heart attack and sold the bugle, and a couple of new foes have shown up. This was one issue back in the 60s. It's not like the added page count adds a lot to the story, because it doesn't. One thing that really sticks out is the pop culture references. Now, I know Marvel Comics have always done this, be it Aunt May's reference to the Beverly Hillbillies in Annual Number 1, or Peter setting the VCR for Twin Peaks and The Simpsons in Todd McFarlane's run, but here they're referencing things I don't know have any real impact. At one point, Spidey says he wants to get home to watch Brothers and Sisters, but I have no idea what this is. Was it a big show that I just missed? Or was it just there as a gag because Mark Guggenheim worked on it? The character writing is well done in places, and then botched in others. Spider-Man feeling no remorse of guilt for Parfrey's death is incredibly out of character for Peter Parker. Spider-Man is funny in places, but the lack of drive is noticeable. Peter isn't the driving character in these stories, and Marvel seems to be throwing more and more characters into the mix to hide that fact. This Peter Parker is just coasting through life, directionless, and as such, so are the stories. 
Amazing Spider-Man issue 552 and 554 bring in Bob Gale as writer and Phil Jimenez returns as artist. 552 is a pretty boring and generic poster image, but the issue itself is one of the best ones yet. Gale's writing is on point and Jimenez's art is very detailed and nicely stylized. The death of Parfrey gives the newly renamed DB a killer headline, and is Spider-Man a killer headline, mostly, and most of the subplots revolve around this. The main plot has a drug-addled crook named Freak rip off May's donation box until, after being chased by Spider-Man, he crashes through the skylight of Dr. Kirk Connor's lab, where he incredibly stupidly injects himself with a biochemical he thinks is a drug, presumably because he can't read. He then becomes a chrysalis and mutates into a carnage venom alien goopy thing. The main thrust of the issue, though, is fleshing out all of the new characters. Parfrey's death means Lily Hollister wants her dad to run for Murr against Crown, and the interaction between her, Harry, Peter and Carly is quite light and banter-filled. Peter still seems to feel not the slightest bit of remorse for Parfrey's death, even sneaking into her funeral to get pictures. The Peter Parker of old would be beating himself up over this, and yet here he just seems not to care. There's also a minor continuity goof. When he gets paid for the pictures, Peter states that he can pay Harry and May back for the money they lent him after he was mugged, but they lent him the money before he was mugged. There's also some fun to be had when Spider-Man snags the seat of his pants, exposing a full moon to the people of New York. This ripped piece of costume will come in useful later. Gale handles the dialogue well. Robbie and the Bugle are finding working for Dexter Bennett, DB, get it? Very challenging, and this is quite funny, and Vernon and O'Neill show up again. Fun is also had at the bar with no name, especially seeing Dr. Bong and Lightmaster just hanging out there and having a beer. A nice gag occurs when an N. Hammond is seen donating $500 to Hollister's campaign. Issue 553 is yet another poster image, very influenced by McFarlane, of Spider-Man surrounded by webs as ominous eyes look at him. Vin Gonzalez and O'Neill spot Freak coming out of his cocoon, and O'Neill shoots him through the head, arguing that Freak is clearly a bad guy. Spider-Man isn't sure this is the right call, feeling that Freak hadn't actually done anything wrong, but hey, what can he do about it now? Our new, all-curring hero swings off. There could have been a conversation here about police shootings. Did O'Neill give Freak adequate warning, which I would argue he did. But then was deadly force totally necessary, which I would argue it wasn't. And the Peter Parker of old would have had these conversations, even if it was only an internal monologue. Modern day Peter Parker, though, doesn't care that he was involved in the death of a senator, so he certainly doesn't give a rat's ass if, by freezing, he caused Freak's death. Over at the DB, Peter is harangued by Dexter Bennett into taking pictures at the Hollister mayoral event, and they have to be unflattering photos because the DB, as impartial as ever, supports Crown. Carly meets Kurt Connors and they swap notes, and Jonah gets a copy of the DB. He is not happy. Freak mutates some more and Bennett sends Peter to cover the Thorn event, but this time take flattering photos. Freak has Spider-Man sent thanks to the ripped pants, told you they'd come in useful, and crashes the crown event and fight happens. Jonah, meanwhile, is convinced that the DB is not the Daily Bugle, which saves him some problems. Despite a positive start, it's really hard to maintain much enthusiasm for this story as it progresses. The politics stuff is boring, as clearly Crown will end up being the bad guy. The freak stuff has been done before and better, with characters like the Mole Man, the Scorpion, Rhino, Tarantula. And I'm not really liking a Peter Parker who doesn't seem to give a shit about anybody. Issue 554 has a cover of Freak beating on Spider-Man, whose mask is ripped. 
Yep, they aren't taking the secret identity thing back just yet. Spider-Man fights Freak, which causes more damage to Spidey's rep, as Crown blames Spider-Man for the whole thing. Freak supposedly dies, but just goes back into a chrysalis-like state. Still, Peter manages to get some decent pictures and a decent paycheck out of the day. But DB uses the DB to accuse Spider-Man of attempting to assassinate Crown. Spider-Man then stupidly decides to visit Jonah in hospital. Not only does this all-new, all-dumb version of Peter visit as Spider-Man, but he takes cigars and tells Jonah about the Bugle buyout, causing him to have another heart attack. For fuck's sake, who are you guys writing about? Peter Parker has been a lot of things over the years. He's been selfish, he's been standoffish, he's been loyal, he's been heroic, he's been forgiving, he's made mistakes, he's atoned for them. He has never been as brick dumb as he is here. Peter heads over to yet another party for Hollister and Lily flirts with him. Carly tells him about Kurt Connors' connection with Freak and as Spider-Man he pays Connors a visit. Kurt tells him all about the stem cell research that caused Freak to do whatever it was doing because it was in the fluid that he drank, yada yada yada, and Spidey puts it together that the guy called Freak from the Feast Centre is Freak. But upon returning to the scene of the crime, he finds that Freak has gone. It starts snowing. Uh, I, I, I don't even know what this was. Bob Gale is a great writer, I have a lot of time for, but this is awful. Peter Parker exists in this in name only, not really doing anything to further the narrative, rather things just happen around him. He dismisses that he may have had some involvement with Freak's creation, just like he ignored his tacit involvement in Parfrey's death. He lies to Carly about taking pictures of her father, picture that were used to slag him off in print, and his general attitude is one of somebody who could not care less about what's going on, who it affects, or what the hell he's doing. He blunders from one escapade to another with little rhyme or reason, and the series feels incredibly directionless. Lots of things have been set up, but nothing is being prioritised, so we have a number of plot threads just hanging there with no real focus. At least the art in this issue is nice. The final arc I'll be looking at this week is the fourth writer in the Webhead's Brain Trust, which was Zeb Wells, and with Chris Bacalo, he wrote the next three issues, 555 through 557. Sometimes It Snows in April opens with Spidey and Wolverine grabbing breakfast together in an abandoned house. Not reading The Avengers at this time, I have no idea why this is. It's blizzard conditions outside and Spidey has other things to do, but Doctor Strange drops by, does some hoodoo, says some weird shit's going down on Bleecker Street at 4pm, and that Spidey and Wolverine should probably be there. Spidey takes off to do his other things, and at the DB, Peter is filled in on Jonah's health before returning to Bleecker at 4 when Ninja guys are waiting for him. Wolverine arrives, stabby stabby happens, and Spider-Man takes the villains to the police along with their intended victim, Dr. Rabin. Rabin reveals the ninjas are Mayans, who claim the equations they are studying are sacred, and that his team are in a van somewhere freezing to death. I don't know. Spider-Man heads back out to find them. As Spider-Man travels the mean streets of a snowy New York, Dr. Rabin turns out to be a badden, hacks the ninjas to bits, and puts O'Neill, Vin, and Carly in deep doo-doo. It's all some mystical mumbo-jumbo, and Spider-Man must fight the evil Mayan and Dr. Rabin to save Carly. Nice Art by Bacalo closes out four stories and 12 issues that were a real slog in places. This is supposed to be a brand new era of Spider-Man and yet it's just not very good. Oh sure, the art is mostly nice, but the writing is trying too hard. You can't fake Stan's mixture of corny dialogue and 
earnest situations and anyone who does try to do that no matter how talented they may be just end up coming across like a pastiche or a piss take only the final story here comes to a conclusion and feels like a complete tale but as it's a very boring one i felt a little let down i admit my dislike of the last story is just me i don't like spider-man stories like this where our hero must tackle an ancient evil they always feel like doctor strange stories to me rather than spider-man stories relying as they do on mysticism and magic at least the early stories were crime fiction, which really is in Spider-Man's Ballywick. The main issue, though, is the characterisation of Peter himself. Because this was a magic button reboot, none of this has been earned. All of these new characters and situations have been dumped upon us in rapid succession, so we don't actually care. Carly and Lily seem like fine characters, but Harry suddenly reappearing with a new girlfriend and dragging Carly along as if she's been there all along is forced. The same with the other supporting characters like Hollister and Crown. The revamped role for Betty Brandt as Peter's friend and confidant fills in the role MJ used to play, but she doesn't get a lot of time devoted to her. The new villains aren't bad, especially Mr Negative, he's got potential, but the rest seem forgettable. And Jackpot? Forget about it. Brand New Day ran for well over 100 issues, and I may pick it back up in the future. There were certainly some good stories in this run, and I would like to reread them to give this era a fur crack of the whip. And we're back with the emails. Am I following all the right leads, or am I about to get lost in space? which is from Luke Giaconetti. Hi, Andy. Wanted to drop you a quick line about your Palace episode covering the many incarnations of Lost in Space. Unlike a lot of the genre shows which were created before my time, I did not discover this one as a teed on the sci-fi channel. No, this one, along with Land of the Giants, aired on Saturday afternoons on USA Network in the late 1980s, and it was there wherein I first discovered it. Frankly, I like Land of the Giants better, but there is a definite charm to the series and its budget-conscious spirit of adventures. Speaking of, my favourite Irwin Allen story of all time involves Lost in Space. While choosing an episode, the script called for the Alien of the Week to land in a spaceship before menacing the Robinsons. Allen reportedly took a look at the script and then at the estimated cost of building and filming the alien ship and shouted, let him walk, and cut the ship from the script. That little scenario, to me, perfectly encapsulates the Irwin Allen school of filmmaking. I have to extend a big thank you for putting me onto the original pilot, which I have never seen, and will now seek out. Sounds very much like what I call Irwin's procedural sci-fi, like we got with The Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea. I call this procedural because, like a police or legal procedural, the characters are more important for what they do rather than who they are. On Voyage, for instance, while Admiral Nelson and Captain Crane do have some personality, they are more defined by their role on the ship. This extends to the rest of the crew as well. In many ways, this is the opposite of what Gene Roddenberry would do with Star Trek, where the characters themselves were the crux of the series. I distinctly remember being very disappointed with the Lost in Space film, one of those cases where I, as a viewer, really wanted to like the film, but the film had other ideas. At least I only watched it on DVD at a friend's house rather than the theatre. I have not watched the Netflix series. My wife and I just finished The Defenders, to give you an idea of how behind we are on such matters. I'd hoped that the show would be all ages appropriate, what with the concept of it being a family in space and all, but I have heard several reviewers specifically say it is not okay for younger children. Oh well, I guess I can always find refuge in older material, which, whilst not being as flashy, I can still watch with my kids without getting angry or embarrassed. 
Maybe I'm the one who's being naive, but that's where I am at this point. I'm just going to interject slightly, though. Uh, I'll be honest. I mean, you're the best judge of your children. I was letting my kids watch and read stuff that perhaps other people wouldn't have at their age because I knew what my children were, were capable of handling. But I didn't think that the Netflix Lost in Space was anything above a PG, to be honest with you. Um, I think there's one occurrence of the word bastard. Um, but I don't think there's any terrifying sequences. I'll be honest, I think there are episodes of Doctor Who that are scurrier for young kids than Lost in Space. So watch it yourself, obviously. Give it the parent test, see what you think. But I, I didn't think there was anything though that younger kids couldn't watch. To be honest, I th like I said, I think it's very definitely the lower end of a PG. It's not a 12 by any means. My subject line comes from a song titled Lost in Space by horror punk legend Misfits off their album Famous Monsters from 1999. For good or ill, whenever I hear the name Lost in Space, I sing that song. Thanks for a fun show, and I look forward to whatever else is coming down the pipeline, including naturally more Spider-Man. When my time comes, they'll write my destiny. Luke. P.S. Regarding Sheena... I can honestly say I'd never heard of the show, but at the time it aired, I was in college and not watching as much syndicated stuff as I had in the 80s and 90s. Independent network WPIX, Channel 11 and NY being the main home for most syndicated shows. I don't recall having an equivalent channel in South Carolina, so I've never seen an episode of Sheena, Tars and the Epic Adventures, or Conan the Adventurer. Amazingly, I've never seen a single episode of Baywatch either, so do with that one what you will. Um, I think that's telling about Sheena, that... You know, we're target audience for this crap, and both you and I had never heard of it. I think that's uh, that's quite interesting. I do recall Tars and the Epic Adventures. I don't think I ever watched it. But there was a syndicated Conan series, really? Do we really want a Conan series with its balls cut off? Shouldn't Conan be like Spartacus? Blood and gore and sex and violence and, you know, all that good stuff. Hmm. I wouldn't worry about not seeing Baywatch. It's It's... It's a pop culture phenomena, but it's not actually a very good show. Jack Bond has emailed in, also about Sheena. Odd coincidence, this weekend... Sorry, the weekend before this episode, I saw a $5 DVD set of the 1984 movie and the TV series, which I hadn't heard of either. Again! Jack never... We're, I presume we're all target market for this stuff. And we'd never heard of Sheena. That's, that's something wrong, though. I didn't buy it, so thanks for your report. If I see it this weekend, I probably still won't buy it. I still haven't finished the Tarzan extravaganza I recorded off the classic movie channel last month, and I'm pretty well jungled out. Do you think these jungle movies are being re-released right now to cash in on the success of Black Panther? If so, I think they'll find it's not quite the same thing, Jack. No, it's not the same thing, is it? No, I think they should learn that. Uh, my final email tonight, Spider-Man on telly from John Hames. Hi, John. Greetings, Andrew. I just wanted to drop you a quick note about your Spider-Man episode on the Palace of Glittering Delights. Somehow this podcast had slipped under my radar, which is sad because I'm a big fan of your other podcast and appearances and whatnot. I always enjoy your take on things as you and I are close to the same age. I believe I'm about two years younger. In fact, I will point out to you whenever it seems useful. Well, I'm, I'm whatever age I feel like on any given day, so today I'm about 35. Oh, I always default to a wolf. Stringfellow Walk is 34. So um, I'll, I'll, I'll string, if, if 34 is good enough for string, it's good enough for me. It was interesting to hear about how you were exposed to various forms of media across the pond during the same time I was. Um, regarding Palace falling under people's radar, yeah, when I originally started it, it was a vanity project. 
Um, it was stuff that I wanted to talk about that I didn't think anyone would be interested in. I still think there are lots of stuff I've talked about that nobody else is interested in, but um, it seems to have found its niche, and maybe I should plug it a bit more. The problem I have is I don't know how to make it stand out from the other pop culture podcasts that proliferate the internet. Um, I mean, if you've got any ideas, send them my way, you know. Um, Spider-Man continues. John is a TV show. is one of my first superhero-related things I remember encountering. Spider-Man the TV show is one of the first superhero-related things I remember encountering. I was very young when it first aired, but I have distinct memories of being captivated, both by the wall-crawling sequence as well as the depiction of his spider-sense. It definitely planted some seeds that led to a lifelong fandom of the character. It was fun to be able to think about that all over again. Keep up the good work. Jonathan Schaefer-Hames, co-host of Married with Comics, a brand new podcast I host with my wife, Maggie, available wherever good podcasts can be found. I'm bad podcasts as well, I presume. I heap praise on you, you plug my show. That's how this works, right? That's totally how this works, John. Here's John's promo. Hi, John. Hi, Maggie. I'm still wrapping my brain around the fact that we're married. <laughs> Me too, but I wouldn't have it any other way. Aw. Oh, hey, I was looking at these old comics and I noticed that there's Hold a Hold girl... that thought. Why don't we talk about it on our podcast? We have a podcast? It seems like the logical next step. We get married, we change our names, we combine our comic collections, we start a podcast about comic books. Well, I can't fault your logic, but there are plenty of podcasts out there already. Do you really think we'll have anything new and interesting to say? Oh, I think we'll manage. Welcome to the Married with Comics podcast, where we constantly f*** up. (laughs) She goes from Marvel Girl to Phoenix to Marvel Girl to Jean Grey, to Phoenix, to Dead. Um, <laughs> and then apparently he's so consumed with his own thoughts that he runs right past three monkeys. <laughs> and that way, a brainwave camera took a picture of that guy's head. A brainwave camera. Uh, and Ben's just basically, whatever you gotta do to stop the commies, Nick. So join us at the Married with Comics podcast. We're two newlyweds with a love for comics intelligently, critically, and thoughtfully discuss comic books. Also listen as we goof around, make jokes, and make fun of John for mispronouncing names. I do that a lot. Sometimes we'll pick a topic and review and discuss comics that relate to the topic. And sometimes we'll pick up a comic and see what discussion topics come up. Sometimes we'll spend an entire episode talking about how much Maggie loves Batman. The only thing that's almost as strong as my love for you is my love for Batman. The Married with Comics podcast. Available directly on our site at marriedwcomics.libsyn.com, on iTunes, and wherever good podcasts are found. Also, check us out at Facebook at the Married with Comics podcast. We've got everything you need. Okay, that's it for this particular episode. I hope you enjoyed it. Next time, may revisit Captain Scarlet. May look at the new Captain Scarlet, which I got on Blu-ray for my birthday. Who can say? But I do like Captain Scarlet. As usual, the Palace of Glittering Delights is a production of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. And if you want to support these fine shows... Pop along to twotruefreaks.com and buy your crap through Amazon, through the link that's on the page, and we get a kickback, and that's just so nice to get kickbacks, to get free money. I'd like to say it translates into real money that ends up in my real pocket, 
but sadly not. But it does keep the lights on here in Freak's Towers. I say towers. I don't know if we've got a tower. Don't think we've got a chimney, to be honest with you. Anyway, I'll see you all next time, and remember, everything's going to be fine. Stop worrying. Ta-da. Thank you.